Mark chapter 7. We are going through the life of uh, life and ministry of Jesus, verse by verse, um, book by book, as we make our way through the Gospels and the New Testament, wanting to learn everything that He has for us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture. All Scripture. Every verse, every jot, every tittle, every part of every verse, He said His Word will outlive the heavens and the earth. And I don't know anything else that's better to study than His Word and nothing else, no message, no principles, nothing is going to top His eternal Word. And so what a privilege it, it is. And He said, if, if, if you continue in My Word, you're My disciples indeed. And so that's very important for us to remember. Mark chapter 7, let's begin in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Getting a little feedback, guys, just to let you know. He answered and said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other th such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted to, no one to know it, but he could not be hidden." For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
But Jesus said to her, Let the little the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the, the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And when they brought to him one who was deaf and had an uh, impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should no, tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your eternal word. Lord, we are so grateful that you use it by your Holy Spirit to conform us further into the image of Christ. And Lord, that's what we want. And we know that you want it more than we want it. So we humble our hearts now before you. We want to be teachable. We want to be doers of your word, not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves, Lord. We want to look into the mirror of your word and, and, and be able to let you assess our current condition and let you make changes as you see fit. We don't want to build our house upon the sand by disobeying your word and just hearing it only. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, that you'd make application individually and corporately as only you can. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've been so blessed by just seeing Jesus' life and his ministry and just going through it with you especially, verse by verse. And it's been interesting to see Mark's version of this because he wasn't an eyewitness of virtually all of these events. And church history records that Mark was Peter's scribe and, and kind of gave his version of this story. Unlike Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew, the Messiah, Mark is writing to Gentiles mostly and likely from Rome. And so we've been looking at this different version that Mark has been providing to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We've also been seeing these markers that we talked about in the very beginning when we started the Gospels that all of the, the Gospels have. They have these marker, markers that let us know no matter what account we're looking at with the Gospels, we know where we're at. The first marker is when John the Baptist was put into prison. That's when Jesus really started his public ministry in earnest. And the first year of that is mainly recorded in the Gospel of John, which we'll get to. We were told that his first year of ministry, or we looked at, rather, his first year of ministry being called, as it's mostly referred to as the year of obscurity. And, and so he began with that, that kind of year where he wasn't really popular, and then he started gaining popularity until the second marker hit, where it culminates uh, the year of popularity, because that's the second phase, because it's obscurity, popularity, and then opposition, the year of opposition. His, his ministry is basically broken up into thirds. 
And so we saw last week with the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only miracle in the, in the Gospels except the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels. It's very important to God that we see that. And no matter what Gospel you would have, if you're in a persecuted area of the world where you didn't have the Bible, if you had one Gospel, you would see that miracle. And in that miracle, that second marker, after that marker, you see the kind of the opposition coming. And you see Jesus discerning, and we'll see it in John, because John was written about 30 years later after the Synoptic Gospels, that uh, they wanted to put make him king by force. And so because of that, he starts saying some very difficult things, like you know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood and all of that. And it says after that that many didn't follow him any longer. And that's when he said to the, to the disciples, are you going to leave too? And, you know, and I'm sure the disciples are confused. We're supposed to be gaining popularity here. What's happening? You're saying some difficult things. The crowds are not as big. Uh, they, and so he, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that this third year, this year of opposition is coming and, and he's going to focus on two very specific things. Of course, he's going to be continuing to do what only he can do. He's going to be doing miracles as we see him start going, you know, the last year of his ministry. Uh, but but the third marker where he is at Caesarea Philippi, and he, that's where he says, "Who do men say that I am?" and so forth. From that point on, and it's on all in all four gospels, he starts steadfastly facing towards Jerusalem, making a beeline towards Jerusalem. And he still heals, he still does amazing things, but he really starts to focus and prepare his disciples for his departure. In fact, the last half of the book of John is really focused on the last week of his ministry. And in that last week, he's really going, he's really focused on uh, preparing his disciples uh, for his departure. So today we're going to see him deal with legalism, which is man-made rules that man, man loves to put man, his rules on God's people that aren't biblical. We're going to see that. We're going to see him teach on what truly defiles a person. And we're going to see him perform some amazing miracles. And all of this is in the context of Jesus kind of removing himself because of this opposition, because the time is, his time has not yet come. So we're going to see him geographically move a little bit. And we'll go through that when we, when we get there. So I bring that up to, to say that uh, when Jesus leaves Israel, because he's going to really be outside of Israel proper uh, during our chapter, he's not doing it because he's retreating, he's afraid, or he's intimidated by the Pharisees or anything like that. His, just, his time hadn't come yet, and he's going to continue to minister and so forth, and we're going to get to see all of it. So let's start here. Notice in verses 1 and 2, these religious leaders travel a long ways to oppose him. He says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Who are these guys coming from Jerusalem? These are the big dogs. These are the big wigs. You know, the big kahunas or whatever, you, however you say it. You know, you, you ever work at a job and you have the regional manager coming or the vice president you know the ceo never comes he's too busy getting paid but the vice president comes the the regional manager comes and everybody's cleaning up and they walk in for two seconds and leave and everyone did all this work for nothing they didn't see everything and that's kind of what's going on here it's it, i can see the disciples going oh wow these 
These guys are coming from Jerusalem. They're the big, the big dudes, the, the guys that have all the say and the authority and, and the power. And, you know, I could see Thomas going, I don't, I don't care. I still doubt, you know, or Peter saying, bring them on. You know, I mean, I mean, who knows what they're saying here? I mean, I would be intimidated by these guys. Uh, I don't know if you would or not, but the, the, the reason why they come, we're given that at the end of verse 2. Look at there, it says, they found fault. They didn't come to hear Jesus. They didn't come to see his miracles. They didn't come to sit at his feet and learn. They came to find fault. When God is doing something, there's always those that come that people want to find fault. People that are obsessed with what's wrong instead of focused on what's right or what God is doing. And it's always pride. It's always arrogance. It's always condescension, thinking that you know people are above uh, you and so forth, and and sometimes they are above us in terms of some aspects. But in terms of criticizing things that you know really shouldn't be criticized, they have no place for that. There's no place for it, and and we see that in the passage. But they're trying to find fault with Jesus directly, and that's that's a big error if you're trying to find fault in Jesus. You know, at one point Jesus said, "Who among you convicts me of sin?" And there was silence then. And there is silence today about Jesus' holiness, beautiful life. That's the, the, the ultimate definition of holiness. Is we have all these other definitions sometimes. We just need to look at the Lord Jesus' life. That's the definition of holiness. And we want to be like Him in, in every way. So the occasion for this finding fault was this ceremonial washing. And because Mark's audience is mainly uh, not Jewish, he has to explain it a little further. Look at verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. See, a Jew wouldn't have to be have this explained to him. They would know this. Verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, I don't know about washing couches, what that is. Just we'll, We can ask Mark uh, later, <laughs> you know, when we get to heaven. Uh, but all these things were their tradition. And, and he tells us that at the end of verse 3 there, that it was tradition that was the basis for all of this. And it got the religious leaders um, very upset. But this wasn't about cleanliness. You know, it does say, doesn't it, cleanliness is next to godliness in the Bible? Oh, it doesn't? Oh, you guys are Bereans. You guys are <laughs> testing what people say. That's awesome. There's no such thing as that scripture. Not saying you should aim to be dirty, you know. Uh, maybe dirty is next to being ungodly. I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, th- this isn't about cleanliness. This was about ceremony and outward appearance. And it was linked to clean and unclean food and all these things. But this was an outward way to show your commitment to spiritual cleanliness. Because it is, if you really, really wash before you eat and all of that, then that must mean that you're really concerned about spiritual cleanliness because that's more important. And so it's a, it was an outward way to show their commitment towards uh, godliness. And it's not about the hands, though. That's what they're getting it wrong. And Jesus is going to get into this. It's not about hands. It's about hearts. It's about hearts. That's where That's the kind of cleanliness that God's concerned about. Don't tell your 12 or 13 year old son that he's not supremely concerned with that, but you know, because he might take that too far. 
Uh, but that's what God's concerned about. There were washings in the law of Moses, for sure. There were washings related to uh, the birth of a child or when someone died. There were definitely uh, washings that were commanded when lepers were cleansed, which only happened in Jesus' ministry for the most part. But their traditions sure had a lot to say about washing hands. I want to read you some quotes here. Uh, listen to this. This is from the Mishnah, which is a, a, a historical record of the oral traditions that they had. Any rabbi who disregards washing should be excommunicated. How about this? To slight hand washing is a crime worthy of death. How about this? It's better to go four miles to wash your hands than to eat with unwashed hands. One who neglects washing after eating is guilty as a murderer. They had 65 pages about hand washings. How would you like to memorize that in Sunday school? Oh, I don't, you know, it's like trades 38. I, I got every one to, you know, page one to 38 down with hand washing. I just can't get those, those other, you know, dozens of, of things and so forth. And these two prominent rabbis, Hillel and Shemiah, they disagreed on a lot, but they agreed on 18 different decrees related to hand washings. They even believed that there was a demon named Shipta that would come and sit on your hands so that you had to make sure that you washed. I mean, it was crazy. This, I mean, they went out of control. You'd have to wash down from your elbows down to your fingertips and then take your fists and wash them a certain way uh, with your hands. Then you had to wash your hands back again another way because the dirt was left over from the elbow and it dripped down. And, and, and then you had to wash one more time just to be, you know, I'm eating already. <laughs> you know, I'm on, uh, I'm, on, I'm on the couch watching Steph Curry throw some threes in the hoop by that time. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, this is, this is just gives people a headache when you think about it. But this was their, this was their tradition. Jesus is fine with violating their traditions. He does it on purpose because it exposes their disdain for God's word and their misdirected allegiance to their tradition when it should have been on completely on God's words. And he uses the tradition, the word tradition five times. Nothing wrong with traditions. They just have to not be against God's Word. They have to be Spirit-directed, of course. And we have our own traditions, and I'll give a few of those in a little bit. <laughs> That's funny what you, when you really think about what's really binding on us and what's not. You know, there's, there's something that's biblical, which is commanded for us to do. Then there's unbiblical, which is commanded for us to not do. And then there's non-biblical, which the Bible is silent on, that we have freedom related to it. And so when people start taking non-biblical things and making them biblical or taking uh, unbiblical things and making them non-biblical, I mean, it just gets all, what, what's binding on us? You know, that's why you need to ask people, you know, where's your verse for that? That gets people riled up sometimes. They don't want to hear that. What, 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 what? what do you mean, where's my verse for that? That's what I've been taught my whole life. You've got to have a verse for it. You've got to have Scripture for it. That's why we need to be in God's Word so we know what's really expected of us and what's, what's not? So they, they, they accuse Jesus of violating their tra- traditions. And, and so we can never have traditions to the neglect of God's word. Now notice in verse 5, uh, they asked Jesus specifically about this. When the, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of, of you hypocrites. And I just want to stop there for a minute. For you, those of you that are newer to the Bible, the word hypocrite means actor. 
That's what they would call the actors that would do dramas and so forth. They would call them hypocrites. You could get an Academy Award as a hypocrite. You know, or this, you know, something similar, you could get rewarded or, or, or blessed or recognized as a great hypocrite if you were a great actor. We have to stop and just think about this for a second. No one ever talked to these guys this way. Nobody talked to these guys. The Pharisees, even just the garden variety, random, just no-name Pharisee that wasn't prominent and recognized, these were the head honchos. These were the, the head dudes that were coming. No one ever questioned them. No one, there was no one higher in authority. You could be put out of the synagogue, which means that you'd lose your livelihood because all your connections happened through the synagogue. And, and so people were afraid of them. They were intimidated by them. And here Jesus says, oh yeah, Isaiah prophesied about you actors. Oh, wow. And he quotes it as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God has always wanted our hearts. This is not New Testament. This just goes back all the way through the history of God's people. He has wanted our hearts. We quote this verse a lot of times when we're talking about worshiping God in song like we just finished doing. You know, And it has application because we should mean what we mean from our hearts and not just... I mean, we've done that before. All of us have. We're singing and we're, we're thinking about lunch. We're thinking about... <laughs> how I just am digesting breakfast. We're thinking about all kinds of things and we can catch ourselves and we have to get back to focusing on what we need to be saying and so forth. We know that. But really the context here has to do with living out traditions contrary to God's Word and lifting up our own traditions. And our traditions can be from other people or they can originate with us. We don't need help with traditions that are contrary to God's Word. We can do it just fine, thank you, on our own. That's, that's what this context is about. Because when we obey man-made tradition instead of God's Word, and we can't live in a way that contradicts God's Word with our tradition, our hearts and our lives are not truly worshiping God. You know, we're told in John chapter 4, Jesus said that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And these Pharisees were missing both. <laughs> it wasn't based on God's Word, so there was no truth. And it wasn't spiritual because their heart was disconnected from God with their lives. But look at the quote that in verse 7. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. See, I told you, I mean, I mean my wife knows that washing dishes, I just, it's man's tradition. It's not biblical. You know, right here, I have justification right here. You know, washing of pitchers and cups, it's, that's, it's not, it's, you know, she doesn't laugh either uh, when I tell her that. But. <laughs> Teaching and believing man-made doctrines as commandments of men, all of those things are harmful in our worship and our lives and how we're supposed to live our lives. It's detrimental to our lives. They were doing all this special washing and so forth. It doesn't stop there. Notice the end of verse 8. It says, many other such things you do. He's going to say that another time too in a few verses in verse 13. It wasn't just this. There's many things that they did that was contrary to God's Word, traditions that were not biblical and so forth. Verse 9. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your to tradition. He gives, and he gets real with some very specific examples here. Notice in verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, 
And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Now, in that day, there wasn't any safety nets. There wasn't any Social Security. There wasn't any Medicare. There was no retirement. Basically, you would take care of your parents when it came that time. They were very communal anyway. They lived a lot, many times uh, together, and add, they would add on to their house for their children and so forth. They're already together in many ways. But when you couldn't take care of yourself, your child was supposed to honor their father and mother. Sounds familiar from somewhere. And care for your needs. And so what would happen was that the, and the Pharisees were, loved all of this. They, they, they would encourage people to come in and come into the temple and have a sum of money and say, this is Corban. This is a gift to God. And it sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Legalism always sounds spiritual. It always has a kind of an outward appearance of being spiritual on the outside, but it really is detrimental to what God wants to do through our lives because he knows what we need to do he's made all those commandments that we have and to love God with everything in us and love our neighbors ourselves, and all the things he's revealed in scripture and all scripture has been given by inspiration of God all the verses he's given those things for a specific purpose he hasn't left anything out he hasn't forgotten certain things and oh well, now we need to add on with certain traditions because he he didn't think of something well, you're never going to stand before God and say, you know, you missed this. You didn't think about this. You didn't, you know, I had to make up for this. And you didn't really have foresight with, no. There's nothing that we're going to look to and say, you missed it. So he thinks of, of everything. So basically that money would end up being set aside for the temple. And it was, it, you weren't able to take care of your parents now. Because that money was dedicated to God. And so it was set apart specifically for that. And now you didn't have any money to take care of your parents. And he's saying that shouldn't happen. And the religious leaders loved it because they benefited from it. Sounds like, a, you know, it's familiar to us today. All the false teachers, they're not flying around in jets telling people to give the Salvation Army. I mean, it's enriching them. That those traditions, those, that false teaching and so forth is benefiting them. So we need to be spiritual in the sense of caring for people, loving people. We can have these man-made traditions come in and actually get in the way of what God wants to do through our lives because we're holding on to what someone told us instead of testing what they say by the Scriptures and holding them accountable to what they say. It's very important. Now notice what he says in verse 13. Making the Word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Again, he says many such things that you do. So what does it mean to make the Word of God of no effect? Some translations say nullify. Now, we don't believe that you can make God's Word any less powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's going to accomplish the purpose it's been sent to accomplish and so forth. It won't return void and all those things. So it literally means to deprive of authority or to cancel. You're basically saying that when you do that, when you have traditions that contradict God's Word, we cease to allow it to be authoritative in our lives. And you know what? We're, we're robbed of blessings. And, and that's, I mean, other people are, of course, robbed, just like in this example with the parents. They're robbed of blessings, and that's the most important thing. But we're also robbed of blessings, too, because when we obey God's Word, then that obviously 
uh, allows us to be blessed even more as well. So we have to be careful against anything that contradicts His Word. Any, any tradition that contradicts His Word that actually keeps us from obeying certain things that's revealed in His Word. And we're not going to be made more holy by anything outward, by anything uh, on the surface. And He's going to get to that in a moment. But He just wants us to obey what He says. There are a lot of unbiblical traditions we can fall into. A lot of, there's a lot of things that, are, that even churches function in ways where there's traditions that they have. I'll just give you an example. And you know, God's leading us and growing us in our desire for outreach and our desire to be available to people and our, our, and our desire to grow in, in our evangelism and so forth. But there more and more are churches and, and groups that have the main vehicle for evangelism be when the church gathers. And that obviously we need to be able to invite people to church. That's great. That's wonderful. They should hear the gospel. The gospel should be preached. But what that does is that tradition, what that does is it creates an environment where we feel like, oh, that's all done for me. You know, the pastor's the, he does the ministry and I just, you know, I'm there and I invite people and, and all those things. And you won't find that in the book of Acts. You won't find it there. They go out. The church means called out ones. We're called out of the world. And we said this a week or two ago. And he, and he called us to go out and to be salt and light, to not hide our light under anything that would keep people from seeing that light and experiencing that truth, that life-saving truth. There's a book that I read as a new believer. I don't know if it's still in print, but it was called Out of the Salt Shaker. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's, it was really good with stories about just getting out and, and being available and so forth. So many of the times in the book of Acts, you see God moving and working and so forth. It was just people going through their lives and, and then being available and to, just, to, just to be a mouthpiece for the Lord and encourage people and preach the gospel. But there's all these, all these traditions um, <laughs> that are out there that we have to be careful of. Unbiblical traditions outwardly appear great, but on the but the reality of it, it ends up hurting people and causing great damage. Now, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in verse 14. He says, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And then we're told in Matthew this was Peter that brought up this question. And, you know, there were other, those others of the disciples that were curious as well. But uh, we're told that he was asking this question. Verse 18, so he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Food never reaches the heart. I've been trying to tell my doctor this for a long time. You know, it just doesn't reach the heart. No, it, it does in terms of physical things. But in terms of sin and all of that, it doesn't reach the heart. It's all about the heart. Listen to the Scripture in Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Very important. It says, for out of it, out of it, out of the heart spring the issues of life. David wrote this, I have hid thy word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It all starts in the heart. 
We think so often it starts with our minds, but he's saying that it proceeds from our heart, which means it proceeds from our sinful nature. Our, our hearts are not what we think it is. And then we're told in John 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he, or yeah, John 17, he's praying to the Father and he says, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. Not thy word contains truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them. That means to be set apart. Set them apart by your word. Why? Because his word changes our hearts. That's how we're set apart. Set apart means that's the word from which we get our word holiness. To be set apart, to be holy, it happens in part through his word because it penetrates our hearts. We just finished a few weeks ago looking at the parable of the soils. And those soils were hearts. Different kinds of hearts. And he wants our hearts to be the kind of heart that the, the word of God, which is the seed, can go deep and have root and so forth because then we will bear the fruit that he wants. The 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold type of uh, fruit that he wants to bear through our lives. He continues in verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. See, the, the thoughts come from the heart. Proceed evil thoughts, adulteries. Now Jesus went over this a little bit with the Sermon on the Mount. He said it's not just outwardly. See, they were, they were thinking that it's just outward in terms of sin. That it was just outward things. And he says, if you lust after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart there. So it's the heart. Fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. Ooh, that's getting close to home there. Covetousness. What is that? That's the ungodly desire for more. That's wanting something and, and, and being obsessed with something that something you want that God hasn't said you can have and always not being content and wanting something else and wanting something else. And there's whole teachings, there's whole websites, podcasts on teaching you how to get these things that you're coveting. They don't use that word. That would trigger something in the people's mind. Wait a minute. But Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all those that desire to be rich fall into a trap. They don't quote those scriptures. Why aren't they quoting those? We're, you know, Paul said by the Spirit, I've learned to be content. Whether I am wealthy or whether I'm poor, I've learned to be content in all situations because God will send us in different situations and we need to be comfortable with all of it. Notice he continues with wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye. See, I tell my wife, see, evil eye. No, she doesn't give me evil eye. It's talking about jealousy and envy, you know, you're... You know, you're looking at someone like, I can't believe you get to have that, and I don't get to have that. You know, you're giving them the, you know, the evil eye of, of, of jealousy there and envy, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Oh boy, it's getting convicting in here. Uh, so yes, those things come out of the heart. And then he says in verse 23, all these things come from within and defile a man. Man, isn't, doesn't Jesus know how fragile I am to hear this? This is breaking my self-esteem here. You know, I, this is how can he tell us that? Because he's telling us the truth. He said, "You being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask?" You being evil, he knows us. We're evil. He he wants us to have an accurate assessment of our lives. Apart from him, we're evil. We're not basically good. We have a few faults. That's what every other religion teaches. We're evil, and then God comes in and He makes us how he wants us to be. And it's beautiful with the character of Jesus. So he gives these 12 things and they come from within our 
hearts. I love when the world says, and I've had unbelievers tell me this and I'm sharing my faith, God knows my heart. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He knows your heart. That's not a good thing. He knows your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's our hearts. He knows our hearts. That's the bad news that he knows our hearts. That's, that's what God's assessment is. That's why it's so important to have God's word define the truth about life and about everything else concerning uh, how we live is because his word is such an amazing standard. He tells the truth. That's why Christianity, among many other reasons, it's true. Because only God would inspire people to tell the truth about man. Because man, if man inspired this book, he would never tell the truth about himself, that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, that we're, our hearts are wicked. What man's going to write that? We're not, I wouldn't write that about me. I wouldn't write that about ourselves. I, and if I were Peter, I'd make sure that Mark didn't put anything in that made me look bad. He couldn't stop Paul from that. In Galatians chapter 1, he says that Paul opposed Peter to his face in front of them all because he was playing the hypocrite. He was being the actor there. I'm sure Peter appreciated that. But I mean, with the Spirit, and with you know, knowing that God would use him, I'm sure that he was thankful that, that that was put in there because God has a purpose for it. David wrote, after a long time of not repenting, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, created me a clean heart, O God. Created me a clean heart. That's where, that's where the, the priority is for God. He doesn't care about our hands. It's not about hands. It's about hearts, dirty hearts. And only he can wash the heart. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we're told this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What's noteworthy is that he doesn't say, do not fulfill the lust of the flesh and you will walk in the Spirit. That's what we think. That's how we would write it. But he says, no, it's the other way around. Walk in the Spirit. Why? Because when we're walking in the Spirit, when we're submitted to Him, we're allowing His Word to have its place in our lives and we're submitted to Him, we're walking in humility and all those things. The Holy Spirit produces His beautiful, beautiful fruit. And, and fruit is for other people to enjoy on a tree. It's not for the tree supremely. It's for other people to enjoy. We're so self-centered. We're so man-centered. We even think the fruit of the Spirit is for us. When it's not, it's for other people to enjoy. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. So when we walk in the Spirit, He gives us self-control and we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul said in Romans that if by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I live. It's by the Spirit that I put to death those things. It's beautiful. Verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Now you need to know the geography here. He went as far north as he could go on that on the west side or the, the if you're looking at a map on the left by the Mediterranean Sea, way, way up north. It's the furthest north he ever went. Uh, in his public ministry or any time that we're, we're told. It was out of uh, Israel proper, way, way up there. And again, he's responding to this opposition that's starting to ramp up. So he's not going to engage them. It's not his time yet. He's not running, but he's, he's just not going to deal with them right now. He has other things that he wants to do. So he's up on that far, le- far west side uh, of um, that area there. And he entered this house. He didn't want anyone to know it. But again, he couldn't be hidden. People heard about him. I'm sure that entire Tyre and Sidon, there in Phoenicia, that's where it was, the area of Phoenicia, 
I'm sure that people had heard of his reputation and so forth. So we're told in verse 25, for a woman whose young daughter had had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. What a perfect picture of worship. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. So this one, this lady had everything not going for her. I mean, she was a woman. She was approaching a rabbi. Rabbis weren't supposed to talk to women. You know, she was a Greek. She was, so she was Gentile there. We're told she's from that Phoenician area. That's the area where Jezebel was from in the Old Testament. So she's not even from the land of Israel there. And, and she kept asking him. It appears that the, the father or the, the, the husband is out of the picture there. So she'd be even more ostracized. Even in that culture, she'd be ostracized. And she has this daughter that is demon-possessed, and she's just desperate. You can't get any more of a picture of desperation there. And then Jesus said to her in verse 27, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And we look at this and go, wow. You know, that's, this seems harsh on the, on the surface, but this is what it is really saying, I believe. You can disagree. You can be wrong. I'm just kidding. But, you know, this is how I, this is how I see this. Because little dogs is a whole nother word. You know, when we think of dogs in the Bible, it's usually referred to, in fact, Paul refers to certain false teachers as dogs. It's a whole nother word than what he's saying here. You could, you could translate this puppies. Now, who could not like puppies? They're so cute. Puppies, you know, these little puppies. And, and the fact that they was in the house at the table, it was, it was like a pet. It was something that was, um, the, the, you know, I'm not going to say part of the family. My family keeps trying to get me to say that our dog's part of the family. I just can't go there. I just can't. I'm sorry. I just can't. You know, maybe I'll come around someday. But this lady here is is just begging him. And the key, I think, to understanding this is in verse 27. Notice the word first there, verse 27. Let the children be filled first. And that's kind of what would happen because there was an order when you ate dinner, when you have a pet there, and there some us have dogs that hang out under the table. They're like doing laps around the under the table. They're slithering inside your legs. They're positioning themselves if there's more than one pet for the right position to to get these little scraps that fall to the ground. There's an order of of all of this, and that's why I think it's important for us to see the word first there, because it was appropriate for. Jesus, he mainly ministered to Jews. He knew that the disciples, and the disciples didn't even know this right at this point, the disciples would be able to reach the Gentiles. Peter himself, of all the people <laughs> that's going to be uh, you know, saying all these things to Mark and reporting all these things and everything, he's going to be the one that reaches the Gentiles. And he's going to be surprised by it. He's going to be on that roof at Joppa there. He's going to have a vision of unclean animals being lowered on, you know, on a sheet three times and Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Something that you don't say. They're contradictory there. And, and he's basically showing him what I've cleansed is not unclean anymore. When my Holy Spirit comes into that Gentile's heart, that Gentile's no longer unclean in the sense of being a non-Jew. And so here these, this, this lady understands. She's not saying, I want the food that's supposed to go towards the Jews. I'm not wanting that. I'm not asking for anything outside of your plan for them. They're supposed to get fed first. They're supposed to get the bread on the table. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But that bread is so good. The bread that you provide is so amazing that even the crumbs will do everything I need it to do. And then he sees that faith. And, and it, it's, it, it's that faith that she has in the fact that I don't want anything out of proper 
the proper order. All I want is just little leftovers, and the leftovers will be enough. So Jesus, he, he recognizes that faith. So she answered, and she said that in the, what, the crumbs in verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. How many of us have had toddlers that are at a high chair? Okay, it doesn't matter how big that tray is in front of that toddler. I mean, that thing could be half the kitchen. You know, huge, massive. I'm surprised they don't make those. You fold them up and everything and put them in a little thing, you know, and it comes out eight feet wide and it's 10 feet out that way. That child would still get stuff on the floor. Still get stuff on the floor. They have a gift for that, it seems like. There's always going to be crumbs there. So, he said to her in verse 29, for this saying, for this saying, what she just said, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And so he points to the centurion that had faith, wasn't a Jew. He points to this lady, wasn't even in Israel. <laughs> and, and she has all these things against her. She has faith and he, and he marvels at, at that and grants her what... Uh, he, you know, she, what she needed. And, and, and so he's not, she's not talking him into something he doesn't have a heart to do. It's just that there's a proper order and she, rec- she recognizes that. Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel and it's the power of God into salvation for all those that believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He wrote in Romans that, that theirs is the covenants, theirs are the patriarchs, all of those things. He went into the synagogue first. He, he took over that tradition, it was good traditions, from Stephen. Stephen did the same thing. And I'm convinced that Saul of Tarsus encountered Stephen and, and could not resist the wisdom of God through that man and continued that tradition on his missionary journeys. Now he leaves this area in verse 31, again departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon. He came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So if you were looking at a map, he was on the far left over here. He's up in Tyre and Sidon along the Mediterranean, and he goes way up high around to the east side of the Sea of Galilee down into this area called the Decapolis. And Deca means ten. Copolis means city. So it's it's an area of ten Greek cities there. On the eastern side of Galilee, on the eastern side of the Jordan, which was not Israel proper again. He's over there outside of Israel. He's on foreign soil there. And then we're told in verse 32, then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to put his hand on him. You know, I'm kind of drawn to this man because, I mean, just imagine what he went through. I can't even imagine being deaf, not being able to talk. People probably thought he was stupid. You know, who knows what kind of insults he'd experienced in the past. And notice in verse 33, Jesus takes him aside and he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. I don't, this really wasn't really done any other time by him. The way he ministered to him, it's as if he's kind of acting out what he's going to do for him. He takes him away from, it's going to, because it's not normal to do this kind of thing. He takes him aside privately there and he kind of acts out, or not sign language, but he just kind of does things to where he, it, it's, it's more of a connection with him and how he is. And I believe this is truly being sensitive to his feelings and his true needs. You know, one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through everything verse by verse, 
gone through the Gospels is that we've seen that Jesus not only cares about what he's going to do to the person, but he also cares how he does it. And he ministers in a way in how he heals that takes care of other needs that are beyond the greatest need that's apparent on the surface. Remember when we saw the lady with the issue of blood? He called her daughter. She had been ceremonially unclean. She probably couldn't be a part of any of the synagogue celebrations and services, and who knows what she wasn't allowed to do in the temple and all of that, and he calls her daughter. He didn't have to call her daughter, but he knows that the crowds there, they needed to hear him call her daughter. She needed to be restored socially, not just be restored physically. See, he takes care of everything. Isn't he so good at what he does? He takes care of all these needs. You know, hearing Zach's testimony and just hearing how he just met so many different needs. I just was talking to a couple a few days ago, and they'd known the Lord for two years, and just hearing how God has answered so many very specific, and they say small things. He didn't have to do it, but he does. Just like the littlest of things he takes care of and heals and restores, and that's the beauty of seeing him work as only he can. And we're, if we're not in the process of being an extension of his of his life in this world, we're missing out on seeing that. If we're not in the middle of seeing people being raised up and discipled, we're missing the life-changing uh, uh, process that he brings people through. And it's it's so beautiful because it's different in, in every area and it's different for every person. We also saw when he healed the leper, you know, we saw him put his hand on his shoulder. How long had it been since that man's been touched? He was breaking laws just by being that close. He's supposed to yell unclean, unclean, and you're supposed to stay away a certain amount of distance from him. He was breaking all of that. He was desperate, and it would probably been years since this man had actually been touched by someone other than a leper. And Jesus comes and puts his hand on him and touches him. He needed that touch. That could be missed over if you just look at it quickly. But he, he ministers to every need that we have, even ones that we don't even realize. How many of us in this room had been ministered to the Lord and you didn't even realize you had those needs until he fixed them? A lot of us. He just comes in and like, you know what, you didn't even know you needed that, but I did it. See, that is supposed to help us trust him for the future. He has our best interest in mind. Never be, apart from the cross, of course, that's the main thing. Don't ever question what he's going to turn you into or what his decision-making is going to be. If he died for you and for me, then what is he going to hold back from us? But then in addition to that, looking at his track record with us and what he's done for us and in our lives and so forth, that is all supposed to be used by him in our lives to make us trust him more for the future and that he's going to take care of every single little detail. And it's, it's beautiful how, how he works. Notice he looks up into heaven in verse 34. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, it's the best I can do. Ephratha, I don't know. That is, be opened. Again, he's writing to Gentiles. They don't know Aramaic. So he's defining it for them. Mark is, be opened. And, and it's interesting, when looking up to heaven, why would he do that? I believe it's very possible he's letting this man know where his help's going to come from. He's not speaking to him verbally. He's deaf. So he's looking up. He has his hands. He's doing all these things with his fingers and spit and tongue and all this. And he's looking up into heaven and this man can see that his help's going to come from above. It's beautiful. He's just ministering in, in a way that we would never think to minister. And it, it's incredible. Verse 35, Immediately his ears were opened 
and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. This man would never be the same after this. He had relationships. He was going to be changed. He had a mother. He had a dad at one point. They had plans. They had dreams for him. All of these things were inhibited by his condition. And now he encountered Jesus and his life was radically changed. It still happens today. Changed lives. He still wants to heal. He still wants to deliver. There's still people demon-possessed. We're in election year. You know, it's not obvious. There's people possessed. He wants us to use us to deliver people uh, from demonic strongholds. Are we thinking that people are any less demonic? The uh, influence than back, you know, less now than they were then. I mean, it's more so, at least as much. And people can be delivered from demons supernaturally. It's beautiful. Verse 36. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I love that phrase, he has done all things well. And he does. He does all things well. There's, he does so many things well all at the same time. We just think that we're aware of certain things that he's doing in our lives and we think that's like he has to focus all his attention and try really hard to just focus on that one thing. And he's, he can do like 50 billion things in us if, if needed. It's not hard for him at all. He does so many things all at the same time and he's doing it in all of us at the same time. Amazing. There's no limit to what... He can do. He does all things well. So, tradition versus the Word of God. Let's hold on to God's Word. Let's not waste any time with stuff that's not biblical. There's no power in it. There's no, there's no grace for it. If you're doing something He hasn't called you to do, whether it's a tradition or even something that's not, that is biblical, but He hasn't called you to do it, you're wasting your time. We're wasting our time. He wants us to be empowered by His Holy Spirit to do what He's called us to do and have His Word of God be the standard. Not even Christians that we respect and look up to. They are not the standard. God's Word alone is the standard. True worship is obedience to God's Word, but not just from the head, not just from the lips, but from the heart. God sees our hearts and He wants it to be genuine. It means something to Him. It matters to Him when it's genuine from the heart. And lastly, Let's minister to the whole person as we pray for people's needs. Let's be open to the Holy Spirit speaking to us and saying, they asked for prayer for this, but I want to do this. They don't even realize that I want to do this, but this is what I want to do. Pray this way. It's amazing when we do that, when we're listening instead of thinking and planning and how these, these prayers that have been rehearsed and pre-planned, and he just says, just pray with your heart and I'll lead you. Listen to my voice as you're praying. Let me direct it. Let me direct your prayer. Let me direct that supernatural gift that I have given you. And if we don't know what our gifts are, we need to find out what our gifts are and walk in those in a spirit-directed way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord. We loved every bit of it. Thank you, Lord, that you change us. And we're, we're changed as a result. But Lord, help us to obey what you've spoke to us about. And Lord, as we get ready to worship you again, Lord, speak to your people by your Holy Spirit. Instruct us. Bring application. Help us, Lord, as we confess sin, as we repent, as we turn to you, as we say the things, Lord, that you've been talking to us about during this time. Thank you for the privilege of being changed. We thank you that holiness is its own reward. Thank you that we get to live a different kind of life by your grace and by your power. 
And we thank you that we get to study it together as a family. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.